Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, The Hidden Years of Jesus, A Spirituality of Invisibility and Obscurity, and is based upon the lecture readings for Sunday, December 31st, 2006. One of the curious features about the Christian story is that we know nothing about Jesus before he began his public ministry around the age of 30. We don't know what he looked like. It's only an inference that he followed Joseph as a carpenter. Scholars speculate whether he went to school. He left not a single scrap of writing. The Gospels of Mark and John don't even include birth narratives, but begin with Jesus as an adult. John Dominic Crossan has noted that ancient biographies often start with the public lives of their subjects, skipping over earlier years as irrelevant. Still, it's hard not to speculate, especially when you consider that Mary could have told stories about her son. In the centuries after Jesus, a genre of so-called infancy narratives emerged to embellish these missing or hidden years of Jesus with fanciful legends. In the infancy gospel of Matthew, animals speak at Jesus' nativity. In the infancy gospel of Thomas, which Anne Rice utilized in her fictional novel Christ the Lord, Jesus curses a playground bully who consequently dies, then raises him to life with a spontaneous wish prayer. He turns clay pots into flying birds. In the Arabic infancy gospel from the 6th century, Jesus' diaper heals people. His sweat cures leprosy. Other fables claim that when Jesus was 12, he sailed to England with Joseph of Arimathea and built a church near Glastonbury to honor his mother Mary. Or that between the ages of 12 to 30, he studied in India, Persia, or Tibet. The early church rejected these fables about Jesus as spurious and instead followed the lead of the gospel writers by contenting itself with ignorance and silence about Jesus' so-called hidden years. This reticence and restraint about the hidden years of Jesus are remarkable, and reminders that the early believers were not gullible and naive when it came to sensationalist exaggerations about miracle stories. We do, however, have one brief exception, to our otherwise total ignorance about the first 30 years of Jesus' life. Luke's Gospel for this week, in chapter 2, verses 41 to 52, records the only canonical story we have about the years between Jesus' birth and his public ministry. And it's much more prosaic than we might wish. It's the story of the 12-year-old Jesus in the temple at Jerusalem. Luke writes that every year Joseph and Mary made the 150-mile round trip from Nazareth to Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Passover. When he was 12 years old, about 20 miles into the return trip home to Nazareth, his parents discovered that Jesus was missing from their caravan of family and friends. 
Any parent can imagine the terror that they must have felt when they couldn't find their son. After a second day to return to Jerusalem, on the third day they found the boy Jesus in the temple, quote, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions, end quote. When Mary rebuked Jesus, it became apparent that he was not accidentally lost, but that he had deliberately stayed behind. Quote, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? End quote. Mary and Joseph didn't understand this mysterious response. After their safe return to Nazareth, we read that Jesus was obedient to them and that he grew in wisdom and in stature in favor with God and man. Two points in Luke's story deserve mention. He reminds us that Jesus was a normal little boy who experienced genuine human development physically, mentally, morally, and spiritually. Jesus' authentic humanity is precisely what the legendary infancy narratives obscure and deny. The story also hints at the emergent tension between Jesus' filial identity with God the Father and his willing obedience to his earthly parents. Eventually, that obedience gave way to a radical disruption, for by the time of his public ministry, his own family tried to apprehend him, and the entire village of Nazareth tried to kill him as a deranged crackpot. But that's all. These two points do nothing to fill in the thirty years of silence about the hidden years of Jesus. I like to imagine that Jesus' early life was so insignificant, so prosaic, and so secluded in obscure Nazareth that there was nothing really relevant to report. If we let Jesus' silent missing years stand at face value, instead of filling them with some deep meaning, they speak volumes in our media-saturated world of celebrity culture self-promotion, and endless noise. His hidden years just might hold the clues to a countercultural spirituality of invisibility and obscurity. For most people today, and Christians are by no means an exception, personal identity and fulfillment depend upon being well-known, not unknown. Visible, not invisible acknowledged rather than ignored, important instead of insignificant, and in demand rather than out of commission. But when I consider how thoroughly invisible Jesus was for 90% of his life, leaving no footprint of who he was or what he did during those years, I wonder what a spirituality of obscurity, seclusion, and hiddenness might look like. Most of us live hidden and unheralded lives. I think of my friend Betsy, a stay-at-home mom who left a career as an attorney in order to cook, clean, do laundry, and chauffeur five kids to the dentist, to school, to birthday parties and sporting events. Her husband, by the way, enjoys a prestigious career. 
Or there's my friend Steve, who will remain housebound and bedridden the rest of his life due to a debilitating disease. Claudette raised a family, but now she lives alone in a tiny apartment as an elderly widow. Other believers have intentionally chosen hiddenness. The Trappist monk Thomas Merton, who lived from 1915 to 1968, spent 27 years cloistered in Gethsemane Monastery in Kentucky, never leaving, but nevertheless spoke to the entire world with his prophetic writings. Or finally, when I visited Liberia last summer, I was reminded how entire countries and entire people remain invisible to the world because they're so insignificant to the geopolitical calculus of the day. You probably won't see a story about Liberia on CNN. For Christians, the delicious paradox is that the missing 90% of Jesus' life, no matter how completely lost to history, was not lost, was not hidden to God, not by a long shot. Nor are our lives today. Liberia, Congo, and Darfur are not hidden to God, even though the world ignores them. After raising six kids and then experiencing a divorce, my mother lived by herself for 33 years, but none of those years were lost to God. He sees and knows. He loves and cares. He doesn't ask us to lament or to transcend our invisibility to the world. In fact, he might even disrupt our lives by asking us to try obscurity. However hidden and obscure our lives might feel, either literally or figuratively, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, in that very hiddenness he is redemptively present just as he was with a 12-year-old Jewish boy in an obscure Palestinian village. And now for further reflection. What do you think Jesus was like as a boy? Does our total ignorance about his early years matter? What do you take from Luke's story of the 12-year-old Jesus in the temple? And finally, have you ever experienced hidden years? And for further reading and reflection, you might want to see Anne Rice's fictional novel called Christ the Lord Out of Egypt from the year 2005, in which she has a seven-year-old Jesus narrate his earliest years. For books this week, I review a book by J. Brent Bill, the title of which is Holy Silence, The Gift of Quaker Spirituality, Brewster, Massachusetts, Paraclete Press, 2005, 147 pages. I have often repented of speech, wrote the 4th century Desert Father Arsenios, but never of silence. In this simple and popularly written book, J. Brent Bill introduces readers to what he calls the holy hush 
Theology and Practice of Quaker Spirituality. Quakers number only about 200,000 people in the United States, but their influence extends far beyond that tiny remnant. With no creed, no liturgy, no sacred place defined by architecture, no observance of holy days, no sacraments, and no professional clergy, Quaker simplicity revolves around silence. Silence in personal spirituality and in corporate worship. Silence is what J. Brent Bill calls the Quaker sacrament. In other words, that place where a believer meets the real presence of Christ. Given the ambient noise in so much of our culture, silence is a gift most believers would do well to cultivate, and Quakers can help show us the way. Throughout his six chapters, Bill shares his own personal successes and failures and intersperses the text with what he calls quietude queries that serve as guided self-examinations to help readers hear the voice of God. At the end of the book, a glossary provides simple definitions for common Quaker terms, while a section called Words on Silence gives 15 annotated suggestions for further readings. Readers will need to consult other books for more technical treatments of Quaker history, theology, and ethics, but I will say this. Reading Bill's book, Holy Silence, tempted me to visit the Quaker meeting place not far from my house. For film this week, I review the movie Down to the Bone from the year 2004. Vera Farmiga won a Sundance Award for her portrayal of Irene, a blue-collar checkout clerk, mother of two boys, and a compulsive cokehead. Irene is a survivor of sorts who is easy to admire. She clearly loves her two boys, Ben and Jason, and finds another job cleaning houses when the grocery store fires her. She even checks herself into a rehab. But she leaves rehab early. She spends her kid's birthday check on cocaine and leaves her deadbeat husband for a recovering addict named Bob. Her emerging love with Bob devolves into relapse, codependence, and new spasms of self-destructive choices. Writer-director Deborah Granick also won a Sundance Director's Award for this film. Befitting the despair and depth of Irene's problems, the entire film takes place in the dead of winter, and at the end of the film, the plot remains open and unresolved. Rated R for drug use and some nudity. Down to the Bone from the year 2004. And finally for this week, we've posted a poem by John Dunn entitled Nativity. Immensity cloistered in thy dear womb now leaves his well-beloved imprisonment there he hath made himself to his intent weak enough now into the world to come. But, oh, for thee, for him, hath the end no room? Yet lay him in this stall, and from the Orient, 
Stars and wise men will travel to prevent the effect of Herod's jealous general doom. Seest thou, my soul, with thy faith's eyes, how he which fills all place, yet none holds him, doth lie? Was not his pity towards us the wondrous high? That would have need to be pitied by thee. Kiss him, and with him into Egypt go, with his kind mother, who partakes thy woe. John Dunn, The Nativity Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for the last Sunday in 2006, December 31st. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.